It's Friday, 1st of December, and this is your Capsule Economics Weekly Briefing. My name's Neil Shearing. Dave is out this week, so I'm in the hot seat, and I'm delighted to be joined by Vicky Redwood, our Head of Economic Research, and Andrew Kellingham, our Chief Eurozone Economist. Hi, Vicky. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Hi. In this podcast, I thought we'd do something a bit different. We get to grips with one of the most important issues, I think, that's hanging over financial markets. That is to say, whether a period of higher interest rates is about to imperil government finances and fiscal sustainability. Now, if you think all of this is a bit of an arcane subject, then you've clearly not been on the wrong side of shifts in bond market term premia over the past month or so. In fact, I go as far to say that this is perhaps the most important question hanging over the outlook for the next couple of years. Uh, You've both written extensively about this issue, so are well-placed to identify what matters and what doesn't and where the risks lie. Vicky, let's start with you. There's been a lot written about fiscal policy over the past couple of months, and there's a lot of jargon and difficult issues to grapple with. How should market participants be really thinking about fiscal sustainability? Give us a framework for, for tackling it. Yeah, it's a bit of a woolly term, isn't it? Debt sustainability. But I think it's is generally taken to mean that a government's debt to GDP ratio is on a stable path or even a downward path. And that in turn means that financial markets are willing to lend to that government at a relatively low premium. And so I suppose it doesn't matter so much what the starting level of debt is, it's what the trajectory is going forwards and whether that looks sustainable and whether government plans look plausible. And so it's this complex interaction, isn't it, between the growth rate of the economy, interest rates, the primary budget position, that is to say, the budget position excluding interest payments. When you, when you put all of that together, which countries look most at risk from a fiscal sustainability perspective? Yeah, what we look at is what we call R minus G, which is basically where interest rates on government borrowing are compared to GDP growth. And the countries where the fiscal risks are greater are those where interest rates on government borrowing are going to be higher over the next decade or two than over the last two, but where there isn't a pickup in GDP growth likely to help governments to pay for those higher interest costs. So basically where R is going to be above G or where the the gap between them is not going to be as favourable as it was in the past. So if we look at that, I think Italy stands out as being a particularly at risk. I'm not surprised and I'm sure Andrew will say a bit more on that. Other countries like the UK, France, Japan, they'll probably have to run a small primary surplus to keep their debt ratio on a sustainable path, which doesn't sound too bad. But we need to remember that's coming from a position of, of many of these countries running big primary deficits now. And then similarly, there's some countries like Germany, the US, Canada, on the face of it, there's not so many problems there. But again, in the case of the US, for example, the US is running a primary deficit of sort of five, six percent now, and that it needs really to get that back to close to zero to make sure that debt is on a sustainable path. So I think, yeah, probably in the Eurozone is where the risk is greatest, but actually most countries, I think markets will be a little bit worried about what's going to happen going forward. So there's a couple of things going on, isn't there? One is that there has been a structural loosening of fiscal policy, I think, since since the pandemic. If you look at budget positions now compared with say 2019 deficits are, are generally larger uh, and that's not just because of interest payments that's there's been an underlying loosening of fiscal policy the second point is you're right interest rates are higher so bond yields are higher but your point is that what really matters is whether the growth rate of economies 
has changed as well. So you can perhaps sustain higher interest rates if if the economies are growing faster. And we've done also a lot of work looking at R star and how that's shifted, and we think it's going to you know has increased, and we think it's going to increase further in the future, in part because we've got productivity growth going up, particularly in the US, as a result of AI. So there's lots of interactions here and that are difficult to grapple with and and wrestle with, but I. I think perhaps a key point that comes through in all of this, Andrew, is the Eurozone is slightly different because of its institutional arrangements. Just talk us through why the Eurozone is different and what that that means. Yes, thanks, Neil. Well, I'd say that there are, I was thinking there are perhaps three reasons why the Eurozone's debt dynamics are a bit more tricky than in most other developed economies. One of them is, as you say, the institutional setup is different. So because governments have to service their own debt, but they don't have their own central banks. They are not able to uh, monetize their deficits or use QE at the national level if they run into some difficulties. So as a result, you get this spread between the yields on the peripheral countries or those which are considered to be more risky and the core countries. And that that spread simply means that the R in the in the R minus G uh, equation that Vicky was talking about is is going to be a bit higher in those countries than otherwise. I mean, the other points I thought worth mentioning are that if we look over the long term, the Eurozone is likely to suffer from a bigger increase in R minus G than other developed economies because it's to some extent a price taker as far as interest rates are concerned. So if global interest rates led by the US rise, then the Eurozone has to pay more. But we think that prospects for the Eurozone's growth uh, rates are a bit weaker than elsewhere. And in particular, that they're not very well placed to benefit from productivity increases driven by AI and other technologies. And then the third point is that within the Eurozone, the increase in interest rates relative to growth rates is going to be biggest in the countries that can least afford it. So again, Italy stands out. It has a is likely to have a bigger increase in rates, but its growth prospects are very, very poor. I mean, its fundamental problem is that it only grew by half a percent per year on average over the first 20 years of the Eurozone, and it's probably going to slow in the next couple of decades. So, so part of the issue in the Eurozone is that interest rates get dragged up by global phenomena, but not necessarily because, because growth is faster in, in the Eurozone. So they, they suffer on the R part, but they don't necessarily get the benefit back from higher higher growth, higher, the, the higher G part. Let's unpack what's going on at, at an institutional level, though, because I think that's that's important, and that was one of the points you you just made. So we, obviously, since the, the Eurozone debt crisis in the middle part of the last decade, we've had the ECB politicians standing a bit more behind national bond markets. We've had large amounts of quantitative easing and asset purchases. Now QE has turned to QT. The fiscal rules that were suspended during the pandemic, they're about to be reimposed or reinstated next year. How's the, how's the politics around fiscal policy and the institutional setup changing in, in the Eurozone? So you've got the two aspects of this, so fiscal policy and monetary policy. On the fiscal side, there are going to be some changes in the rules, well, the so-called Stability and Growth Pact, which you know, sets out fiscal targets for, for governments. Um, it's not clear at this point exactly how they'll change, but essentially they're going to move to a system which allows countries more control over the path that they follow to keep debts uh, sustainable. 
In practice, I don't think this is going to be a huge change from where they were before, but there's going to be slightly less emphasis on particular numerical targets for the deficit and so on. On the monetary side, clearly there's been a huge learning process over the past 15 years, as it was the ECB and its QE program, which ultimately contained the Eurozone crisis. So that, I think, provides some reassurance that, you know, if push came to shove, the ECB would step in again. However, you still have an issue that uh, is not present in other countries because the central bank responds to systemic Eurozone-wide problems, and it's not really supposed to respond to a sovereign debt problem that's emerged in one country because of poor fiscal policy. So if, for example, Italy were to pursue very expansionary fiscal policy in the next five or 10 years, whilst the economy doesn't grow very much, it's not clear exactly how that would be resolved. So the Eurozone is vulnerable because of its low growth rate and the institutional setup and the way that that's evolving. But actually, Vicky, when we look at the budget numbers, what's been happening to primary budgets and primary deficits, the biggest deterioration has come in the US. How does the US fit into all of this? Obviously, it has the exorbitant privilege of having the world's reserve currency. That gives the federal government a lot more leeway as regards fiscal policy. But how big are the fiscal risks, do you think, in the US? Yeah, well, the US is in a in a better position, as you say. It's its institutional arrangements are better. Dollar is the global reserve currency, so that means the government generally finds it cheaper to, to borrow from global markets. And if we're thinking about the growth side, GDP growth side of things, then we think that, a, that the AI revolution will actually benefit growth in the US the most. So the US will be the biggest beneficiary of that pickup in productivity growth driven by AI. So in, in that sense, the US is relatively well-placed. However, looking forward over the long term, like many other developed economies, the US is going to face rising costs from an aging population. So that uh, means that the long term debt trajectory is under pressure from that angle. Um, And I think in the near term, the main concern is that there's not really much prospect of fiscal tightening, discretionary fiscal tightening in the US, despite the fact that it does have this really high primary deficit. So if we've got this rising debt trajectory in the long term because of an aging population. We've got a big primary deficit and we don't have any sign of fiscal tightening in the next few years. So I think that's why we've started to see signs in the financial markets that they, you know, traditionally we haven't worried much about the US, but I think there are perhaps tentative signs that now they are starting to worry a little bit. If you look at some of those numbers from the CBO on the long-term fiscal trajectory of the US, they look pretty scary. I guess one country where the long-term outlook for the fiscal position is deteriorating or is deteriorating because of an Asian population is Germany, but it started from a much stronger position, isn't Andrew? Yeah, we've had over the past week or so this, this disagreement over the the budget for next year. What's going on in Germany and how much attention should investors be paying to to, to events there? So yeah, Germany is in many ways that has the opposite problem from the US. It's tended to run very large budget surpluses, at least in recent years before the pandemic. And if it were to return to that, its debt ratio is likely to trend downwards pretty significantly over the next 10 or 20 years. And they've also enshrined the sort of a, a balanced budget rule within the constitution. And that's made it difficult for them to, to run more, just slightly looser policy. They, as people probably are aware, the problem that has arisen over the last week or so is that the constitutional court has ban the government from using off-budget funds to finance some of their green and industrial policy. 
as a, as a result, they may end up tightening policy more than they really need to next year. It's not quite clear politically or legally how they can get out of that. But based on our forecast for long-term growth and interest rates, Germany could afford to run a budget which is 1.5% of GDP looser and still bring the debt ratio down to about 60% or so, which is a sort of old Maastricht rule. So yeah, they have this very unusual situation in which most people would be hoping they'd run slightly looser policy. And certainly investors in the bond market don't need to worry about any default risk. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, how we we can run the macro numbers and we can look at that sustainability through a, through a macro lens, but ultimately all of this comes down to politics, doesn't it? And that then feeds back through into investor confidence and interest rates, and which is obviously a key component of debt sustainability. When it comes to politics, it's a busy electoral year next year. We've got elections obviously in the US, probably in the UK too, uh, and in a host of EMs, their potential flashpoints. What else do you think, Vicky, investors should be looking for in terms of potential flashpoints or on, on the fiscal side of things over the over the next 12 months or so? Yeah, I think they'll be looking closely at what governments are saying in terms of their fiscal plans. We know that government, most governments do plan to tighten fiscal policy a bit over the next couple of years. So the question is whether they follow through on those plans or whether they sort of cave into electoral pressure ahead of these elections. So certainly markets will be looking closely at, at what governments are saying. And I think it's as much about perceptions as reality here. What we really want to avoid is getting into a vicious cycle where markets start to get worried about the debt outlook, perhaps because governments are not are sounding like they're not actually you know, really convinced that they, they need to get their deficits back down. And then markets get concerned, that raises risk premium and interest costs go up and then the debt outlook worsens further, which in turn makes markets even more concerned. So that's certainly the situation we want to avoid. So I think a lot comes down to to what, what we're hearing from what the rhetoric is from governments over the next year or so. That was Vicky Redwood and Andrew Kenningham on fiscal risks. I'll link to the pieces they have written in the show notes and you can read more about the fiscal outlook and what it means for global markets on our website. Now, earlier this week, Martin Wolf, the FT's chief economics commentator, wrote his column around our work on US-China fracturing. That's led to an avalanche of interest from clients in both our analysis, but also the accompanying data sets that we've put together on the global fragmentation. I caught up with Mark Williams, our chief Asia economist, to discuss what's going on. I started by asking him how investors should think about the geopolitical blocks that are forming within the global economy. Well, a lot of the time, geopolitical analysis is seen through the lens of uh, the US versus China. So people who are interested in the economics of this geopolitical uh, shift often talk about, for example, whether China is going to overtake the US as the world's largest economy. Now, that is a, a useful question. It's one that we've, we've uh, published views on over the years. Ours is that uh, China probably won't overtake the US. But what our fracturing analysis hopefully makes clear is that in the context of uh, the geopolitical strains that have emerged, it's not really the point whether or not these, you know, the, the relative size of these two economies, because we're not seeing an era of globalization giving way to uh, one in which it's every country for themselves. We're seeing countries attempting to form alliances, form blocks. We've seen, you know, the Biden administration has been reaching out to countries in Asia to try to strengthen those ties. We've seen recently China in the Middle East trying to improve those relationships. 
So it, if you're thinking about geopolitics, I think it makes a lot more sense to be thinking at the level of, of blocks. And when you do that, what our fracturing work shows is that this broad parity that currently exists in terms of the relative size of the US economy versus the Chinese economy completely gives way to a massive imbalance in favor of the US. So by our estimate, the US bloc generates about two thirds of, of, of global GDP. So that's the US and the countries that we think are on its side relative to the China bloc, which is only about a quarter uh, of, of global GDP. So there's a really big imbalance in terms of economic size. And we see that again in our work, we've looked at things like FDI flows, uh, portfolio investment flows, financial market size, equity markets, bond markets. Uh, and wherever you look across these areas, the US and, and its allies taken as a block are far bigger than China and its allies. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, isn't it? Think about the size of blocks rather than individual countries within those blocks. Another point I think we've been stressing, which is important to make, is that it's not just the relative size of those blocks, but the economic diversity of those blocks is very different too, right? You've got Europe that aligns with the US, but also Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Vietnam, India, Mexico. You've got advanced economies. You've got some low-income manufacturers. You've got some low-income services economies, Poland, for example, as well in the EU. But when, when you think about the Chinese block or the China-aligned block, it's essentially China dominates that block and most other economies within it are, are commodity producers of one form or another. So there's not much economic diversity with, within these these blocks as well as there being an imbalance in the, between their size. Well, when we think about what that means for friendshoring or efforts to make supply chains more secure or de-risking, as some people are calling it, what would the size of the blocks and the diversity of those blocks mean when it comes to, to, to efforts to make supply chains more secure? Yeah, so well, our, our contention has been that because it's not just the size of the US block, it's as you say, the diversity of the US block means that it, it will be easier to shift supply chains around uh, within the US block. And if um, companies are le looking to shift production out of one block into the other, it's going to be a lot easier to find suitable places of production inside the, the US block than, than vice versa. So, for example, we're seeing Apple moving or, or expanding production in India uh, relative to, to China. That's that's doable, whereas it's a lot harder for um, the Chinese side to, for example, swap out semiconductor production that currently is happening in Taiwan to some other part of its block because nowhere in the China block other than China itself is, is is really going to be a semiconductor producer. So that makes a big difference to how easy it is for these two blocks to to operate. Now, what, what one particular area where, of course, China is particularly seen to be dominant, of course, is in, in global trade. It's been the world's biggest exporter for, for a very long time. And you sometimes hear these ideas that China is now a more important trading partner than the US is for, for lots of countries. We looked at the numbers recently, and it is true that 144 countries trade more with China than they do with the US, whereas the US is the bigger trading partner for only, only 60 countries. But if we come back to thinking about blocks, the, the, the picture is quite different. So if we think about somewhere like Germany, for example, you know the archetype of a, of a US-aligned country, which is extremely exposed, most people think, to uh, China. It is one of those 144 countries that trades more goods with China than it does with the US. But thinking about its trade with the two blocks, the situation flips over completely. So 86% of Germany's goods trade is with other countries that we think are in the US block. Only 11% of, 
of uh, Germany's trade is with, with China and its allies. So this perceived dominance of China within global supply chains, I think, if you're thinking about it at a level of blocks, is a lot smaller than, than generally understood. Another point we've been making in a lot of our analysis is that fracturing is a process, right? It, it, and and the, the process of fracturing is in a constant state of flux. This isn't that the world isn't just splitting into two. The form that fracturing is taking, the speed with which the US and China are, are, are pulling apart is constantly shifting and it's being buffeted by politics and geopolitics. So if we think about the core conclusions we've arrived at, essentially we have a relatively, I would say, benign form of fracturing, right? Most global trade remains unaffected by fracturing, but the US and China pull apart in key areas like technology, financial flows, knowledge transfers around high-end goods, for example. But clearly there are, there are far more malign forms of fracturing or extreme forms of fracturing too. So what might change in order for us to kind of shift these conclusions around relatively benign form of fracturing and, and the US block in particular being able to to withstand and, and, and adapt to, to some of the problems and challenges caused by fracturing? So I think there are potentially three different ways in which our conclusions could materially be be different about this with the shape of, of the fractured economy in, in the future and what that means for for um, economic outcomes. Two of them I'm not too concerned about. One of them I think is, is a much more plausible kind of alternative scenario. So one of them is if the the makeup of these blocks shifts, you know, some countries defect or move from one 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 block to another, and we are seeing that. You know, we we've we started to publish or talk about this idea of blocks and analyze in terms of blocks a couple of years ago, and we are continuing to think about this sort of in real time, and we have changed our mind about some countries or felt that some countries have moved over the past couple of years from one side to the other. Places like Saudi Arabia, for example, South Africa two countries that we think have moved a bit closer to China over the past couple of years. So that could change, but that's very unlikely to materially change the size of these two blocks. As long as the the G7, the core of the US block holds together, then it's going to be a lot a lot bigger. Another way which in principle the outcome could change would be if the, US, the Chinese block was to grow a lot faster than the US block, such that even though it's smaller now, maybe it wouldn't be in, in 10 or 20 years' time. Of course, the, the growth rate of the China block has slowed a lot over the past decade, and we don't think there's a, that it's very likely that the China block will grow materially faster than the US block over the next ten or twenty years. Now, I think people, you know, will have their own views on on plausible trend growth rates in in lots of countries, but you'd have to come up with some pretty strong numbers for the Chinese block to 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 grow such that it ends up being a similar size to the US block in ten or twenty years' time. So those two things I'm not too concerned about. The one way in which I think our conclusions could significantly change, though, would be if the US block were to itself fracture. So our benign scenario that you're talking about for the US block, a lot of it hinges on the fact that the US block is so big and it holds together. But of course, it might not necessarily hold together. Particularly, the, the obvious risk factor there is, is if the US became more isolationist, if it was not willing to cooperate with allies in order to secure supply chain security, then you move into a world in which potentially you've got, let's say, three blocks. You've got China, you've got an isolationist US, and you've got the rest of the West, if you like, or even more, you know, it splits even more. In that sort of scenario, then the geopolitics becomes much more economically disruptive everywhere in the world economy. So it's not just China that is struggling and China's block that's struggling to achieve some security. I think we all will be in that world. 
That was Mark Williams on US-China fracturing. I'll link to all of our work on fracturing in the show notes, and I'll also include the link to that Martin Wolf piece that I mentioned earlier. That's it for this week. You'll find all of our analysis on everything macro, fiscal, fracturing on our website, www.capitaleconomics.com. But until next week, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.